Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Okay, in case you're wondering where this picture is, um, if you know the sunset levels at all, um, this here is Barrow Mump, and that's Athelney over there. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> is that still all right for everyone? Yes. yes. Rightio, first off we have to start off with a bit of geography, because geography is very important to um, what we're going to talk about. Um, so if we look at the, where the sunset levels is, it's this bit down here, um, shown in blue, and it's part of a system of um, low-lying coastal wetlands either side of the Severn Estuary. So they're shown in blue on this map, along the Indian side and along the Welsh side, and they um, share similar characteristics and similar histories. But the area I'm going to be talking about today is just the, the south sunset levels down here. Um, if we look in detail at the sunset levels, you can see that it's surrounded by high ground. It's got the Mendip Hills to the north, the Quantock Hills over there to the west. It's got the Blackdown Hills just peeking up the bottom of the slide there to the south. And it's got the highland along the sunset Wiltshire border over on the east. So it's surrounded by highland, and effectively the area shown in blue on this map is, is a vast basin where all that water drains into. A huge floodplain cut in half by the Polden Hills. So just to give you a bit of orientation, um, Cheddar's up there, Glastonbury's there, Langport's there, um, Taunton's down there, and Bridgewater's over there, to give you a rough idea what we're talking about. Um, as well as being a large floodplain, shown in blue, within that floodplain I've picked out in green here areas of upstanding hard geology um, that are basically islands in that wetland. Um, and many of these have um, island names today, which I'll come back to in a minute. So there are quite a few of these. There's, there's over 100 of these small islands dotted across the floodplain, um, many of which you'd have seen on the news over the last two years, especially that one down there which is much neat, which we'll see again later on. So we've got to start off slightly further back in time to give you an idea of what's, what the situation was when the Romans turned up and what they faced in their attempts to reclaim the wetlands. So the history of the Somerset Levels and Moors and its, its paleogeography goes back really a lot further than the last ice age, but if you begin at the last ice age, um, the water level was a lot lower than it is today, uh, Britain was still joined to the continent. The Severn Estuary didn't exist. Um, and if we look at that Somerset floodplain, it was all freshwater wetland, and by 6000 BC, the coast was still further out to sea than it is now. That's the present-day Somerset coast in black. So the coast was further out to sea than it was now. But a 1,000 years later, that changed dramatically because the sea levels kept rising, so by 5000 BC, almost the entirety of the Somerset Levels and Moors as we know it today had become part of the Severn Estuary and was a mixture of salt marsh and mudflat inland as far as Glastonbury and beyond Langport. Um, and this is important because that's when first layers of silt and clay are deposited in the wetland. Eventually, they start getting covered up by freshwater peat deposits so a few thousand years later, we're going very quickly in time to begin with because it's not what I'm meant to be talking about, but you get deposits, deep deposits of, of peat being formed in um, 
habitats made of reed swamp and um, raised bog. So these areas in green, you get fairly deep peat deposits. Um, and this does have a bearing on how these areas could be reclaimed and managed later on. And it's a basic distinction created then between this coastal area, which is known as the Somerset Levels, and the peat-dominated moorland inside. So that's the distinction between the levels and the moors. The moors further inland, the clay-dominated levels along the coast. Um, if we look at the period of time immediately preceding the, the, the Roman conquest, um, there's a big transgression of the sea. If I go from that slide to that side, you can see the seas come back in again over a large part of the levels of moors. This happens in the Middle Bronze Age, around about 1500 BC, into the Iron Age. And this is where we end up at the end of the Iron Age. So we've got... Oops... We've got the sea coming in, again, as far as Langport, and coming in all down the Axe Valley, as far as Godney, only a few miles, less than two miles away from Glastonbury. So it's a picture of the Somerset coastline that's very different from how we know it today. And again, it has a, a significant effect on what happens later, because in these areas coloured in blue, you've got salt marsh and mud flats, where deep deposits of silt are accumulating, and in the areas shaded in green, you're getting more deposits of peat forming. So it's reinforcing this distinction between peat and clay areas. Um, so this, this is what, what it would have looked like in those blue areas, except without the nuclear power station in the background. Um, mixture of this salt marsh mud flat, in places like the Axe Valley, it would still be grazed. Um, cattle graze happily on salt marsh as you can see here, so if you, if you substitute these Welsh mountains for the Mendip Hills, that's what the Axe Valley would look like in the Iron Age. Um, it's, it's interesting what's happening here, um, because we have a lot of Iron Age occupation offshore on some of these islands, as it were. We've got an Iron Age hill fort over there at Brent Knoll. We've got Iron Age settlements here on these islands, and here at Athelney and Alla which are effectively cut off at high tide, off, off the Somerset coastline. Um, the areas in green, the peat-dominated areas, were a mixture of open water, reed swamp, uh, very dense older woodland, rather like these environments shown in this slide. In some places, um, you could only get about by canoe, and this is a period where we have quite a few um, examples of Iron Age canoes uh, discovered. From the Iron Age, this is one from discovered in 1906 in Shapwick, a few miles away from Glastonbury, um, that's now on display in the County Museum in Taunton. Also, there are some very dense older car environments, um, a sort of environment that's not very productive and is very hard to travel through, rather like this in a current nature reserve. And also, in the central part of the Brew Valley, we had this sort of environment, raised bog, so very wet, dominated by heather and sphagnum moss with the occasional birch tree forming a kind of low mound. Very hard to cross, very hard to, to reclaim. Um, so all these sort of peat habitats put, cause big problems for, for reclamation compared to a salt marsh. Um, 
that's a, a brief look at the Iron Age wetlands. If we look at the only place where those wetlands are tamed by the end of the Iron Age, it's Ilchester, which, going back to this map, is right down here, right at the edge of the wetland system. Um, and this is the only place in the Iron Age where you get settlement on the floodplain and reclamation of part of the floodplain. This is an image showing the dry ground, the higher ground in white here. With, that's where current settlement of Ilchester is. And uh, this is LIDAR data, which is... Um, do a quick explanation of LIDAR data. You send a plane across the landscape, it shoots down a laser, they measure how long the laser takes to bank, uh, bounce back up to the plane, and they can use that data to create a very accurate topographical map of the whole landscape. The Environment Agency use it for, for flood mapping, but in this case, it's very good for picking out archaeological features. And the feature it's picked out here is this big curving bank that's tying into this river system. Um, and that bank is the bank of a big Iron Age settlement on the floodplain. This is an excavation of part of it. The bank's there. It's very slight on the ground today. And inside, we're picking up evidence of Iron Age occupation and industrial activity. So in the classic archaeological style, we go from that very small trench to reconstructing the entire landscape. Um, and what we've probably got in the floodplain is an Iron Age small town or oppidum um, that has some similarities with some ones further east in, in Oxfordshire. So on one edge it's got um, a river as a defence, on the other edge it's got a curving bank and ditch with lots of settlement inside. That's the only place where the, the wetland is really tamed for settlement and altered, just at the edge of the levels, nowhere else, everywhere else it's left in its natural state. Um, this oppidum soon disappears when the Roman army turns up, um, and they build a fort on Ilchester, and that often goes out of use. Um, now, if we turn to where the Romans, where during the Romano-British period reclamation took place, there's only three distinct places where it happened. One of which is between Ilchester and Langport, down here. Another is in the Axe Valley to Breen Down and to Brent Knoll up in north, and there's another site here from between Sturt, the Polden Ridge, and um, roughly Huntsville over there. So these are the only three areas where reclamation took place. Um, these two are on the coast, but this one was probably possible. They were building on what the, uh, what the previous Iron Age tribe had created here, and expanded this valley into a settled area. If you just look at, that's where our oppida was there, now gone out of use. Ilchester expands into a large walled town of road systems crossing the wetland and all the wetland landscape is reclaimed for agriculture and indeed settlement. So all of that part of the valley is reclaimed for settlement. Um, not all the settlement was in the, um, on the floodplain. People were still living on the islands. If we look at that one Muchelney down there, this is Muchelney at the height of the floods in 2014. And you can, you can see why it's, um, in, why it's an island. In Anglo-Saxon, Muchelny means great island. The EY ending means island in Anglo-Saxon. Uh, and in Somerset, there's lots of island place names with that same ending. Afrony, Muchelny, Parchy, Godney, uh, Forney, Littlenee. The list goes on and on, lots of them. 
um, and the Zoi ending, Z-O-Y, in places like uh, Western Zoiland and Middle Zoi and Ched Zoi also is derived from that island name. So this is Muchrani, um, showing up as a, as a large island. Um, you'd have seen on the news endless TV crews going backwards and forwards in boats down there um, during the winter, um, filming R8 locals there. Um, but we're interested in what was going on next to um, much from the Abbey. That's much from the Abbey there. We did some work in these two fields on this little neck of land. Um, some geophysical survey, which picked up a nice Romano-British-looking settlement, ladder-like settlement. So each of these probably had a settlement within it. And we did a small community excavation, produced lots of nice dating evidence for a settlement from the 1st to 4th centuries AD, um, judging from the, the pottery, and a mixed farming community with um, some arable and a lot of livestock that was probably grazed on the floodplain. Just downstream from that at Allah, the next island down as it were, we have uh, um, similar things going on. Um, this is a geophysical survey on the island of Allah. So everything in here marked in grey is a geophysical survey. So all these black lines we're picking out are nice bits of archaeology. Um, so that's very dense archaeology we've got there. Um, in the Iron Age, Allah's defended by a big bank over here. But um, very early in the Roman period, what is probably a Roman camp is established over the top of that. Those defences are, are demolished. A camp's established over the top of that. And you soon get minor British farmsteads established on the island. So just looking at this little part here, you see a square and a circle. That's a prehistoric barrow, the circle. But the square, showing up in closer detail here, um, is the enclosure of a Romano-British farmstead. So this is part of its uh, enclosure ditch being excavated um, by a, a young volunteer and a county archaeologist. I'll let you, let you decide which is which. Um, and that's produced evidence of um, first and second century occupation um, on that site. And they had the usual range of, of pig, sheep, goat and, and cattle and they're also hunting wild food um, so you've got um, duck being hunted as well so we've got we've got settlement and occupation down here we've got reclamation of the wetlands next if we look at this big block of reclamation up here to reclaim this part of the salt marsh what would have been salt marsh in the iron age they had to create sea defenses along the coast they had to create river defences along the river to stop um, riverine flooding. So huge capital investment um, was made um, during the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD. Um, this is looking at the landscape of the Axe Valley around Nyland Hill, which is in roughly in the middle of the valley. And I don't know if you can make out, but under the present-day field system, there's lots of traces of an earlier landscape. And that earlier landscape is one of the best-preserved Romano-British reclamations in Europe. Um, this is a transcription of some of that aerial photography data. So all the lines on here represent um, field systems and settlements, down there and there and there, droveways, 
and uh, even a canal going through there. So a very productive farmed landscape and a settled landscape on the floodplain. So for that to exist, they must have created and maintained um, flood defences along the river and along the coast. This is a, a slightly easier to see picture, so you can see relics of field patterns underlying the present day field pattern, hopefully on this slide here. So we've got good evidence from the Axe Valley there, that's Nyland Hill. We've even got um, a Roman villa there near Brent Knoll. Lots of settlement in the Roman period in this area. And from our third area, we've also got several um, known Romano-British settlements, one of which has just been excavated at Sturt there in advance of the managed realignment scheme. So this is a, a, a small Romano-British settlement with ditches enclosing it. The actual building was in there, of which very little remains. But interesting environmental evidence from the ditches that surround it and also down the bottom some nice artefacts like this hobnail shoe that still survives. So we've got, again, Romano-British settlement. That one was just about there. There are other ones, several others in here. So again, a settled farm landscape reclaimed from the salt marsh. So a lot of these coastal areas reclaimed. What isn't reclaimed are all these peat-dominated areas in land because that's very hard to do. It's just too much effort to try and do that. So they're going for the quick wins, the bits at the edge of the system and the coastal salt marsh. But they're not reclaiming all the coast. They've left a bit in the middle, um, just in here, between Brent Knoll and um, Alstone and Birtle, which is there. Um, and in there, something else is happening. They've got... Um, a large industrial landscape is created. Um, this is LIDAR data again, which picked up a course of an extinct river channel. Um, this shows it a bit better. So Brent Knoll's there. This is a relic river channel that's branching into several branches. Um, and this was current in the Romano-British period, and it was feeding a huge salt-making industry um, we know of hundreds of these salt-making mounds that have been discovered ever since the late 19th century. A lot were found then um, during peat cutting over here, west of Birtle. Um, a lot more were found when the River Huntsville was created in the 1940s that cut through this landscape. Um, that's the River Huntsville there. It was created to supply Puritan Munitions Factory but it gives it a very nice slice through this coastal landscape. And you can see these Roman salt-making sites falling out of the side of the Huntsville River. This is full of Roman bricotage pottery. Um, this is one in excavation. Underneath, whoops, underneath it, it's got um, an Iron Age deposit of peat. And on top of it is a, a Roman sultan um, created in the 3rd, 4th century AD. This is a reconstruction of what one of these sultans would have looked like. So they're getting um, salt water fed into a, a system of channels and they feed in what we call settling tanks where the sediment from the water is allowed to settle out to the bottom. When the water's clean, clear, it's scooped up and put into a tank on top of a half. Um, and we know peat was used for a fuel 
Probably lead trays were used for the evaporation. We found no evidence of pottery trays. Um, and salt was created and then probably taken away by boat down these tidal creeks out to sea. And we know of hundreds of these sites. Our excavation effectively cut through one of them that's half destroyed by the river. Um, so this is, this is a section through one of these salt-making halves. That's one side over there, one side over there. So you would have had lead trays on the top here. Um, these are some of the round settling tanks. These are ones partly eroded in the river. This is one partly excavated, full of silt, cut into the underlying peat. Um, lots of this stuff, very crude, um, coarse clay with organic components called bricotage. You can get thousands of pieces of this stuff. And going back to our hobnail boot, some of them have hobnail boot impressions on, which is what all these marks are on this one. Um, and because these sites are waterlogged, we also find um, some stuff we don't normally find archaeologically, like this, which is a, a, a clay-lined basket. Um, so that's what it looks like when you take the clay lining off. And this might be what the salt was transported in. Um, they also had a, a little sideline going on on some of these salt-making sites because a lot of these coin moulds have been found um, where coins are being forged um, in, the, in the third century AD. Um, so in places, hundreds of these moulds have been found. I suppose if you're out in a salt marsh making salt, you've got a very good view of anyone approaching and um, lots of handy settling tanks to dispose of evidence in. So they had a criminal sideline going on. Um, just looking at the history of that landscape revealed in the Huntsville Cut as a big slice through this landscape. Um, so that's what this is, is looking at the Huntsville Cut and looking at this layer cake of deposits we've got. We've got our prehistoric peat shown in black here, which is cut through by our Romano-British river channels in two places over there. So if we look what that landscape was like in the Iron Age, you've got the sea way over there, and then you've got salt marsh, and then gradually that turns into a raised bog. So that's what the Iron Age landscape is like. Raised bog, salt marsh, seawater. Um, so totally untamed. In the Roman period, by the um, mid-third century AD, we've got reclamation along the coast um, over here, and we've got a Romano-British settlement known at Bleak Bridge on the banks of the Huntsville. So that's reclaimed land. We've got this big salt marsh coming in behind that, which is feeding our big um, salt-making industry, and then we've got a remnant of the raised bog a lot further inland. So that's why all these, these Roman sultans here could be seen in the 19th century, because they weren't covered up by later deposits. So that's what happened by the 3rd century. Um, but then this marvellous system the Romans have created collapses around um, the end of the 3rd century into the 4th century. So by 350, most of it's gone. By 390, I'll just flip between the two there, a lot of that reclaimed land has gone. So all the reclaimed land, all the settlements in this area, the villas, the houses, the fields, the droveways in the Axe Valley, all around here, all the settlements up here, are all covered up by um, the sea, and salt marsh and mud flats start um, creating deep deposits, 
over all this area again. So all that, all that Roman system collapses. It might have been a catastrophic event. Um, we don't know. It certainly happens over a, a fairly short time period of about 60 years. Um, there are a lot of troubles in the 4th century AD in, in Britain and on the continent. There are raids from Ireland coming into this area. A lot of the, um, the army and a lot of money leaves Britain to support various rival emperors on the continent. So lots of the wealth and lots of the armed forces leave. And it may be that once the, there wasn't the, the money or the willpower in the face of all that to maintain the sea defences and they just collapsed, possibly catastrophically. So that's what's happening during the, the ending of Roman Britain, but before the end of Roman Britain. So all of that reclaimed land has gone, all of it's back to natural wetland, possibly with the exception of this part of the um, parts of this valley around Ilchester. Um, you can see that in our, in our Huntsville section because that's where our Romano British sultans are and they get covered up by deep deposits of clay as does the Romano British settlement. So you get um, several metres of these clay deposits from the Roman period going on into the, um, to the end of the medieval period in places. So that's where we left it um, in the Roman period. What happens next in terms of reclamation is our first area of reclamation is the easy bit again. It's the bit on the coast. It's the salt marsh that gets reclaimed first. So the bit in blue is what's reclaimed between 800 and 1200 AD. So you can see nothing much happens inland on the moors at all. Very little reclamation is done. It's all going on on the coast. So the easiest bit to reclaim is the salt marsh, and that's what happens during, mainly during the late Saxon period. Um, we can see this in some of the, the, the settlements that are created in the Saxon period, which have Wick and Hewish and Worth names, all in this coasted area. Um, and we can see it's a very productive area by the time of Doomsday. Um, there's lots of arable agriculture going on along this former salt marsh strip. Um, some of it is reclaimed piecemeal, so you might get an area like here at Puxton, North Somerset Levels, where a bank is created around an oval area, and that's the kind of core of the settlement. And then gradually fields are added to that, and it expands from that core, creating a very irregular pattern of fields. And if we look either side of the Severn Estuary, we can see this hashing here is representing largely irregular patterns of fields all the way up both sides of the Severn Estuary as the, the, the salt marshes are reclaimed in a piecemeal fashion in the early medieval period. If you look at that from the air, you can see that um, in, in a landscape pattern. You've got a block in here that's created in one go, and there it's got a, quite a regular pattern of fields. Um, but then you can see this bit next to it is very irregular and around here. And these are mirroring the lines of tidal creeks, which they're using as their, the boundaries of the new fields. So here we've got a mixture of irregular patterning and one large block being taken out of the salt marsh in one go. Um, so that's, that's, that's happening in these areas where they had turned into salt marsh at the end of the Roman period. So this is the bit the Anglo-Saxons first reclaimed for agriculture. Further inland, 
in this bit coloured green, um, there's no reclamation. We've got some good descriptions of what the environment was like from some um, nice bits of history. There's a nice one um, from 878, when Alfred was famously on the run from the Vikings after suffering a series of defeats, um, leading a restless life in great distress amid the woody and marshy places of Somerset, poor fellow. So the woody and marshy places of Somerset, that's the Somerset Moors. Um, and he came and made his fortress a place called Athelney, um, and from it sailed out with the, the, the Fanes, noblemen of, of Somerset, and struck out relentlessly and tirelessly against the Vikings. Sounds very heroic. Um, it basically means hiding out in a swamp. Um, so if we look at Athelney, the present-day village of Athelney is over here, but this is Athelney Island that Alfred would have known. Um, Athelney itself means Island of the Princes. It's got that EY ending again, um, which was a name that was there before Alfred turned up. And the island's picked out in the floods of last year quite well. This is a recent cut through the middle of it. It was made in the 1960s, so that is all one island there. Uh, so you can see why it's a nice defensible place for um, Alfred to choose. Um, just coincidentally, this is the, the main line to London, so um, you can see why it gets cut off in the winter in flooding. That's where it normally goes. Um, so a very defensible spot Alfred chose. The environment around him was like this. So a very dense, older swamp, very hard to get through. Um, but cutting through these wetlands, there are three big rivers, the Tone, the Parrot and the Axe. So to defend against these, um, Alfred created three fortified um, burrs, one at Axebridge, one at Langport, and one at Ling. These were the first bridging points over those major rivers. Um, and the first bridging point is the first point where you could stop a Viking fleet coming up the rivers. So this is to stone stop Vikings getting any further upriver than these three points. Um, the River Brew that later flows through here, at this point flows flowed north and joined the Axe and went out for the Axe Valley. Um, that was one of the first diversions made whoops, um, in the late Saxon period when it was diverted this way westwards into Mere Pool. Um, Alfred created monastery at Athelney. Um, and again, there's a nice description of it, still surrounded by swampy, impassable marshland and groundwater on every side. And it can't be reached except by punts or by a causeway built by protracted labour between two fortresses. Um, this is the monastery on the top of um, Athelney, picked out in a, in a um, bit of geophysical survey. So you've got the main monastic building here, cloisters off here, and you've got burial grounds on that side. Um, nothing survives on the ground surface of that um, monastery, but it's, it's down that end, um, and there's a, a monument um, put in the Victorian period down there. So that's where the monastery was. This is where Alfred's fort was, where he hid out from the Vikings. So one fort there. This is the causeway built by protracted labour, um, and this is where the other fort was, the Burr at Ling. And in between the two, this is where the tone used to run in Alfred's day, in between the two. So that's where the Vikings we stopped coming up from the sea. Um, this is a later medieval diversion of the tone. 
So you can see this on a LiDAR picture. We've got Afony down here, Ling there, and this is the original course of the River Tone going across the landscape, meeting the parrot down there. Now it's diverted on its medieval diversion and meets another medieval diversion of the River Parrot over here. Um, also, in the Anglo-Saxon period, the wetlands were important um, for religious reasons. Um, because a lot of hermits chose to live on the islands to get away from the, the corruption of, of, um, of life. Um, so a lot of the islands had hermitage on. Some of these hermitages later developed into monastic um, enclosures or priories, like Bertel Priory or Muchemney or Athelney, um, and possibly Glastonbury itself. Um, others just had chapels on, like Nyland or Beckery. And one of these sites at Alla is a site where um, Alfred chose to have, um, when he defeated the Vikings, have their leader Guthrum baptised, which is an interesting spot because Alla's a tiny island which hasn't got a lot going for it. And Alfred could have chosen Winchester or Glastonbury or anywhere much more prestigious, but he chose this island in, in the back of nowhere, which raised questions why. Um, Going back to our geophysical survey, we might have a few answers. One over here where we've got enclosures going on, an oval enclosure and um, a rectangular enclosure within it. So just zooming in here. So these were probably in use during Alfred's period and it might be that this might be um, an oval early monastic enclosure. Um, so there might have been a, um, a small monastic presence on Alla in Alfred's day. Um, up by the church over here, that's the present-day medieval church on Alla, um, we've got this pattern of field boundaries around the church, um, and they also date, um, they, they fill up just after Alfred's day. This is radiocarbon date from some of the top fill. So you've got ditches and post holes within that enclosure. So it might be that after that monastic site goes out of use, a new religious enclosure is created around the present-day church. Um, so we've got some idea of the religious function of some of these islands, and a lot of the land is donated to um, ecclesiastical lords, to Glastonbury Abbey, to Marchenry Abbey, Athelney, and to the Bishop and Bath of Wells. This map is showing part of that land holding. So the high ground on here is shown by dots. So we've got the... Um, Bishop and Dean of Wells owning a lot in red, and Glastonbury Abbey owning all this bit in purple, owning huge swathes of the Levels and Moors landscape. Um, not just in there, but also down here. So if we look at our next phase of landscape between 1200 and 1400, shown in brown on this map, there's a bit, lots of kind of reclamation along the edges of the wetland all over the place, and one big reclamation here um, just south of the island that Western Zoyland's on um, there's also to achieve some of this there's a straightening and canalisation and diversion of all the main rivers of the Somerset Levels so the Brew, the Parrot, the Tone, the Axe the Sheppey, the Heart Lake all have their directions changed and are all canalised in the medieval period mainly by 1300 um, so quite early on, um, this is the relic channel of the River Tone, 
showing where it probably ran in Alfred's day. Um, and just showing you one of our earliest maps of the Somerset Levels, 1575, Saxton's map. We've got the, uh, the Sheppey, the Hart Lake and the Brew all feeding into Mere Pool and then Mere Pool going out to the sea and down Pilrow Cut. None of that system um, existed um, until probably sometime between the, the late Saxon period when the Brew was diverted in there and the Sheppey and then later the Pilro Cut, certainly built by the mid-13th century. So all that water used to flow up into the Axon out, so it's all diverted more directly out to the sea. So major canalisations of the river systems and the Somerset Levels and Moors. You can see that in one more example here around Athelney and Ling. That's where the tone used to go in this dark line between the two and out across the moor. It was then diverted around Athelney and then another by medieval straightening and canalisation of the river was done, shown in light blue in here, that's certainly done by 1374, if not before. And that's where the present-day river runs now. And that holds true for most of our Somerset rivers. Their present-day line is, in fact, following medieval canalisations. Um, this is the, the medieval canalisation of the River Tone, and that's the present-day village of Athelney um, that was built along its banks. Uh, the banks of the rivers were slightly higher than the surrounding moorlands, so slightly safer place to build a house than a few metres over that way. So we've got quite a lot of reclamation going on in these areas, um, coloured in brown. Just looking at, at this one in particular, you can see how they're created because a lot of the flood defences built in medieval periods still to survive. This is Borough Mump down here, the River Parrot going along here, and all this moor and this moor here was reclaimed in medieval period. Flood banks were built going out from the island, which runs around here, to the river. So this one's Borough Mall, Borough Wall, there's Chalice Wall and another wall on the Parrot. Just off the north of this slide is Lake Wall. And those, those are still extant, that's, that's Borough Wall. Again, with settlement along it, um, because they're slightly higher in the surrounding moorlands, so slightly safer places to build. Um, this is Lake Wall, again still surviving and in places got a nice stone face on it. So a lot of the medieval flood banks still survive, even though they don't have a flood defence function today. So we can see some of the more piecemeal reclamation that's going on around the edges. Um, we look at this area, Paulet Hams near the coast, and again, using LIDAR data, what it's showing us is that in the Saxon period there's a core area which is picked out in yellow, which is slightly higher, and there's a little Anglo-Saxon settlement there. Then gradually the area in green was taken out of the salt marsh, and then another area there, and then another area with a flood bank, and another flood bank, and another flood bank. So it's piecemeal reclamation. So to get to the present-day landscape, we've had uh, one, two, three, four, five, at least five um, periods of reclamation of eating into the to river landscape and the salt marsh. So that's how gives an example of how the piecemeal reclamation was happening. What were all these areas used for? Um, well, it's mixed. We know that some of them, from the documentary evidence, were used for arable farming, from documentary evidence, and also from the ridge and furrow um, that's surviving on a lot of the landscapes. So all these lines you can see in this aerial photograph 
were created by these big medieval plough teams, um, creating ridges and dips, ridge and furrow agriculture. Um, also, we know from the documentary evidence that they are very um, favoured as grazing in meadowland, and um, certainly some of the areas were famous for their cheeses, um, like Mir in the medieval period. Also, the rivers themselves were highly valued, um, both as a terms of power for mills and a fish weirs. And again, we, we know of several weirs from the, from the Doomsday Book, um, so they, they're quite early on, Cheddar and Wedmore. And, um, oops, and in the medieval period, a lot more just on one system. We know of uh, all these on the River Axe, all named. So very productive in terms of number of fish, they generated. Um, they all paled beside the enormous lake that was Mir Pool, um, after which the nearby settlement was Mir's named, which produced thousands and thousands of fish for Glastonbury Abbey um, every year. Very productive. Um, just to the south of Mir Pool and on the island of Mir, um, the abbot of Glastonbury had a nice manor house where the monks and the abbot could go when they were feeling, feeling like they needed a break. Um, from the, the rigours of, of monastic life, they'd pop out to Mir and have a relax. There was also um, a fish house as part of this complex, which used to have a boat house around it and rather nicely um, a shed for the fishermen to drink in. Most of this is gone. Um, the fish house still survives. I've shown this as an engraving because it still shows the original first floor access up to the top. So this is where the chief fishermen lived. Um, so it's surrounded by a system of fish pools. And the Great Mere Pool would be just out that way. Um, this is the Abbot's Manor House. You can see um, the first floor hall would have had much grander windows that now later blocked in in the later medieval period, but still show their original shape there. And that's um, the, uh, the sculpture up the top is one of the Abbot's of Glastonbury. Um, so a nice manor house out there. Um, the rivers were also very important for transport, um, and a lot of them are named as small river ports. So we've got Rackley up here, Cheddar, Axbridge, Cheddar there, Axbridge, Weir there on the Axe, um, Bleedney, which is round about there, Godney, and Glastonbury as well. So you're getting river traffic inland as far as Glastonbury and Langport, even up as far as Ilchester. So the rivers are very important for transport. So we can see how gradually the landscape was formed in medieval period. The, the main engineering works were the, the canalisation diversion of the rivers, the reclamation of the coastal areas, and by the end of the medieval period, a large part of the floodplain had been reclaimed. All the areas shown in blue um, and in this kind of pink colour were still open moorland though. Um, farmed in common and used as grazing. And it was only in the, um, these were only enclosed in the parliamentary enclosure period at the end of the 18th century and into the early 19th century, which creates a very different sort of landscape, this very regular divided landscape that we see on those parts of the moors, where the land was divided up between the people who used to have common rights. So that's when the, the last of the, the, the wild landscape was finally tamed. Although, of course, we know from, from recent news coverage that um, 
It's never really tamed. Um, this is the last coastal in enclosure shown on Bowen's map of 1750. This is Brent Marsh, which disappeared soon after this map was made. Um, but as I was saying, it was never, in, never reclaimed. There's always been catastrophic floods, um, some more catastrophic than others. This was one shown in a woodcut of 1607, um, when a huge um, storm surge came up in Severn Estuary and flooded a lot of these coastal wetlands either side, the Welsh side and the English side, and in Somerset the water came inland as far as Glastonbury and caused great devastation. So, so flooding is, is something that's never really gone away from this landscape. Um, the Romans couldn't really tame the landscape. In the medieval period it wasn't highly tamed, and in the present day we haven't entirely tamed it ourselves. So that's where I'll end. Thank you. That's, that's, one, oops, sorry. that's one theory, um, that it was a tsunami rather than a storm surge, but um, opinions divided, um, and I think most people think it was a, probably a catastrophic storm surge rather than a tsunami. There's bits of evidence supporting both arguments, but I think probably on the balance of probability I, I'd go with a storm surge, but it's quite hard to definitively prove one way or the other. You know, the event that happened back in 1607. I think it was weeks. The, the problem is um, the coastal clay belt in Somerset is slightly higher than the inland moors. So once the water gets over that, it's, it's retained by that higher land along the coast. So the inland moors tend to take a long time to drain away, which is, which is what we've seen over the last two winters. That's where the, the flooding's been, and it's hard to get that water out through the coastal clay belt. So that problem existed back in the 17th century as well. Could you tell us a little more about that straight cut built during the war, oh, the, where the factory was that it served, and what went up and down? The, the Huntsville Cut, it basically it was meant, designed to act as a reservoir, water reservoir, for a munitions factory, a Puritan, which needed huge amounts of water. Um, so that's just north of the, um, the end of the Polden Hills. Um, but they, they took the opportunity, they asked kind of what, what shape could the reservoir be, could it be long and thin? So they said yes. So effectively they designed it so it could have a drainage function as well. Um, so now it's very important for draining that part of the Brew Valley. It's got a huge um, pumping station at one end that lifts water up, pumps it into the cut to get it through this, this higher land on, along the coast. So that's what's helping to keep the Brew Valley dry. And that's, why, that's one of the reasons why the Brew Valley didn't have catastrophic flooding in the last couple of winters. Has that answered your question or did you want... Yeah. Is the factory still there or not used? Or? It, it went out of use um, only a couple of years ago. So it's, it's now 
used for a variety of functions. So it was in use as a munitions factory till quite recently. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, the natural course of a river would be to meander through a low-lying floodplain. And that, that's, that's what happened on the original course of the river. They do snake across the landscape. Um, the reason for doing a canalised straight cut is to get the water to the sea quicker. So you're, the theory is you're evacuating the water and taking it away faster. Um, so that's the reason why you don't have the meander. Um, it also means if you're building a flood bank either side of it to contain the flood water and protect the land either side of it, if you have a straight course, you're building less miles of flood bank, which is a major consideration as well. Um, but there are huge disputes over navigation and use of the waterways for mills and dams and disputes between what areas flooded and what areas wasn't flooded and how the water moves around and it's quite interesting that a lot of those disputes about the way flood water is dispute, distributed and sent out to sea you can see them happening in the medieval period almost exactly the same as they're happening now because it's basically the same system Are sort of associated on that with, with Dutch reclamation for Moiden and so on. Yes. And I have in the back of my mind an, an idea that he actually did some work in Sunset as well, but you haven't mentioned him. So was it a very minor? I, 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 was meant, I was trying to stop at the end of medieval period, so <laughs> I didn't go into all the detail of what happened afterwards. There, there was an attempt in the, in the 17th century using Dutch engineers. It didn't really succeed very well. Um, so we've got a very different situation here in Somerset than we have from the Fens, where huge engineering uh, projects went on and were very successful, with, you know, orchestrated by Dutch engineers. The same thing didn't really happen in Somerset. Um, they gave it a go, but it wasn't very successful. Um, so those last unreclaimed bits, most of them were still unreclaimed, and only drainage acts and parliamentary enclosure created the landscape we see today. So it, it, it kind of went on for a few hundred years after that. Um, I, I work for Somerset County Council, so I don't take a view. <laughs> I, I, I think if you listen carefully to what everyone said, I think everyone said dredging isn't the only, you know, isn't a solution on its own. And that's certainly true. Um, people are talking about putting meanders back and also um, grazing land and putting more trees in to absorb more water and slow the water down. Mm -hmm. um, is, is that applicable to the summer records? I, I think we're slowing the water down. Where you want to slow it down is higher up in the catchment. Yeah. Because our river systems now are quite flashy, water goes through them very quickly, comes off the land into the rivers, tries to get down into the floodplain very fast. So the place to slow the water down is, is higher up in the hills. 
in the catchment, and there's, there's various schemes afoot to create kind of mini dams on the, the smaller streams to kind of attenuate that flow, which in, in, in the Saxon and Roman period, they probably had some help there because beavers were still alive in existence um, in Somerset. And of course, what they do is create a whole series of dams on these small streams, creating exactly the sort of structures for free that we now have to go and engineer at immense cost. <laughs> so they, they had a bit of natural help, probably. We've been fed um, a lot of information about conservation, dare I say, and there obviously wasn't conservation at this time. So mm. is it just a modern issue or...? Well, um, it depends what you mean by conservation. In, in the medieval period, in the medieval period, they valued their wild food if you look at things like fish um, and how that was viewed, that's that's really important part of the economy. So it's it's not quite a simple modern perception. I mean, fish stocks and what happened to fish stocks were immensely important in the medieval period. Um, and there's lots of disputes over fishing rights and you know overfishing and who has a weir where and you know it's a very important part of the economy. And also, wild food was quite favoured. Um, and sometimes had quite a high status. So they're, they're valuing nature for what it gives them, I suppose, is a way of looking at it. Um, apart from that, I suppose you could, you could say the, the early hermits and monastic places are valuing nature for its kind of peace and quiet and remoteness from the, uh, the turmoil of life as well. Um, were much of the uh, levels and walls under the control of Glastonbury Abbey and did they do very much in the way of water control? They, they did. They, um, in terms of that oh, Levels and Moors floodplain, Glastonbury probably owned maybe about a quarter of it. So they're a very la- large landowner. And um, the other monastic institutions, Muchley and Afney, also had quite large land ownership. Um, and the, the Bishop and Dean of Wells also owned a lot. And the Bishop of Winchester owned another large part. So these ecclesiastical lords owned an awful lot of the floodplain, um, partly because the monasteries were given them as grants early on when people perhaps didn't value them so much. Um, and, and they did a lot of the engineering. I mean, one reason why Wells Cathedral looks like it does today and why Glastonbury was one of the most um, wealthy monasteries in the country is because of the money they made out of reclaiming the wetlands. Um, so that they, they put in the effort and capital infrastructure needed and made money out of it. So it's, it was very highly valued land once it had become reclaimed, especially the meadowland. I'm sure it was news to all of us. It was also an ideal place to forge coinage. <laughs> <laughs> That's one area of the wetlands we didn't know anything about. But thank you very much indeed. Fascinating. Thank you.